1: I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. Aloha, spooky nerds, and welcome to Talking Strange, the paranormal pop culture show with the Den of Geek Network. I'm your host, Aaron Sagers. This episode, we are talking to a legend of comic books and fiction, Neil Gaiman, but before we get to that, Talking Strange is proud to be partnering with Hauntlanta Paranormal Convention, happening September 22nd to 25th in Atlanta, Georgia. At Hauntlanta, you can meet paranormal personalities such as Amy Bruni, Adam Berry, and Chip Coffee from Kindred Spirits, the cast of Destination Fear and Ghost Brothers, Shane Pittman from The Holzer Files, and yours truly, me, Aaron Sagers, from Travel Channel's Paranormal Caught on Camera. At Hauntlanta, you can attend lectures, take part in wine tastings, kill zombies in laser tag, go on a ghost hunt, and more. Plus, Talking Strange is hosting a kickoff celebrity panel on Thursday night, and a Friday night paranormal story hour, as well as a live recording of the Talking Strange podcast with surprise celebrity Guests. It's all happening this September 22nd to 25th, 2022, in Atlanta, Georgia, at HauntLanta. Go get your tickets at hauntlanta.com. Neil Gaiman is the author of two of my favorite books Good Omens, which I hold in high regard, along with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. And of course, Good Omens, he co wrote with Terry. Pratchett, and that has since become an Amazon Prime series, and we have another season on the way. Additionally, American Gods, just an incredible book and another one of my favorites. But the Sandman comics and graphic novels, they're mind-meltingly brilliant and beautiful, so let's talk a little bit about those. In 1989, Neil Gaiman first introduced us to the world of Morpheus, Lord of the Dreaming and Shaper of Form, in his epic comic book saga. The original DC Comics and Vertigo imprint ran until 1996. The story follows Morpheus as he is trapped for 70 years due to a ritual led by an Alistair Crowley-esque occultist. When Morpheus finally escapes in the late 20th century, he sets out on a journey of vengeance and to reclaim his realm, the Dreaming. Yet he also starts making amends and he evolves into something of a kinder being. Gaiman's creation a lot of times is cited alongside the Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen as amongst the best within the medium. And ever since those graphic novels changed the comic book landscape, he's actually tried to prevent his dream from becoming a Hollywood nightmare. Attempts to bring the Sandman to the big screen had already begun by 1991, and development on a film was already in motion by 1996, but that fizzled. Scripts, uh, producers, and studios came and went, some really bad scripts, but a movie never quite approached reality. One version did seem possible beginning in 2013, but that too slipped into non-existence. Like Morpheus's dream creations, the Sandman project became elusive, almost ethereal. It was intangible. That has all changed with the new 10-episode Netflix adaptation of The Sandman, which premiered August 5th. It's executive produced by Gaiman himself along with Alan Heinberg, who serves as showrunner as well as David S. Goyer. In this story, Morpheus is set to awaken in the 21st century more than 100 years after being imprisoned. And it's set more than three decades after the original comic story, this new series introduces characters and elements earlier than they had appeared in those comics. Netflix's Sandman is still very much Neil Gaiman's Sandman. And he said after 32 years of trying to make bad adaptations not happen, Morpheus's live-action debut is one that he, that Neil Gaiman, is quite pleased to have made work. Before we dive in, let me note that the following interview, which took place a handful of months ago and was embargoed, and actually, to my knowledge, I I think I can have bragging rights here to say I was the first member of the media to talk to Gaiman in-depth about this adaptation. But this interview is part of a sponsored partnership with den of geek and we have a special edition sandman print magazine on the shelves now so do yourselves a favor and pick that up look it up and uh check that out it's it's definitely a a glossy bit of magazine goodness that you're going to want to see also a little more backstory i've had the i've had the fortune to talk to neil a handful of times over the years And this is a guy that never disappoints in giving a thoughtful response, Uh, being a gracious interviewee. He's incredible to talk to, and this is something of a full circle because I spoke to him a handful of years ago about the Sandman Overture book, so it's kind of nice to be talking to him about the beginning of Netflix's Sandman. So with that said, let's enter the world of the Sandman with Neil Gaiman. Very excited to be talking to the team behind The Sandman on Netflix, of course, Neil Gaiman and Alan Heinberg, and thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today. Absolutely love The Sandman comics, and Neil, as I said to you before, was also terrified that this was going to be pulled off, so why now? I mean, why is 2022 the right time, the right moment, and just the right combination of, of elements and magic in the air to make this show? Why did it come together right now?
2: Well, bear in mind that I've now spent literally 32 years making bad adaptations of Sandman not happen. Um, and sometimes that took a lot of work to stop versions of Sandman normally as movies not happening. Um, but at the end of the day, I was always, I always kept myself really distanced from Sandman adaptations, partly because if they were going to be terrible, I needed to reserve for myself the ability to go out to the world and say, no, 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 don't watch this. This is terrible. And that was why I wanted, I wanted to keep that as a superpower. It was like the red doomsday button. I could always press the doomsday button and just say, this is awful. Um, Time changed. The nature of the world changed. The fact that I got to go and make Good Omens changed. Um, Because all of a sudden, as far as the people who make television were concerned, I did know what I was doing, which kind of changed everything. And also, we are now in a world in which people will spend the equivalent of the budget of a major Hollywood movie on 10 episodes of, you know, on the first season of, of, of a story. So you, can, you have that amount of control, you have that amount of resources at your disposal. And then, of course, we got very lucky. David Goyer and I had started talking about how we could do it and make it happen. And um, Alan Heinberg, who had not been free or available, came free and available. His contract was up with somebody else. We had dinner more or less the day after he became free and he turned up with the Sandman page from Brief Lives that he had bought in 1996-ish from a gallery in New York. Um, Lord alone knows how much that will be worth now. Um, And one of the weirdest things about Hollywood is normally, and, and by Hollywood I mean any part of the entertainment business, is it normally takes months and months and months to get contracts agreed and done. But we had dinner with him on the Friday night, and by Monday morning, he was all contracted and signed up, and we were pitching Sandman to the various entities out there who could do it, and the first people to turn up were Netflix.
1: And, and Alan, you coming on board, obviously, was, was part of this, this uh, kismet, if you will this This project, Sandman, when I think about it i don 't think about necessarily one episode i 'm thinking about volumes i 'm thinking about multiple storylines, and we see the Corinthian here, and we 're seeing uh, characters that are spread throughout uh, throughout the first two volumes at least. So how did you approach sort of the storylines and and interweaving these these diversity of characters from multiple? issues into this first season.
0: Well, Neil and David and I got together uh, at Neil's
1: house uh, in upstate New
0: York. And one of the first ideas that Neil and David had already discussed a lot of a lot of really um, smart, I thought, uh, changes, one of which was doing Joanna Constantine instead of John Constantine. One was making Lucien Lucien. Um, and then, early on, I believe it was David who said, we should have the Corinthian in the very first episode. And as readers know, the Corinthian doesn't appear until the dolls house um, arc in the comics. And so once we made that decision, you know one of the one of the greatest things about working with Neil on this project was that one of the first things he said was, "There is a lot of untold Sandman. There is a lot of stuff happening off panel that we just didn't have." pages for when the book was coming out monthly. And he allowed us not only to sort of imagine what happens between panels or off page but he was contributing from the very beginning just pitching what if what if what if there was never a defensive pose with Neil in any way I think part of that was trust you knew that David and I knew knew and loved the material but the generosity with which he said yes absolutely bring the Corinthian in in the very first episode and then what's the Corinthian doing from the first episode of Sandman until we meet him Where he is in doll's house so we it it it, that was how we started and so even laying in knowing where we were going because now you know we've got the entire run of the comic so we're able to lay in as many easter eggs as many hints you know you see martin Tenbones in the first episode um little things like that uh that we were delighted to be able to do as fans um, but mainly it's all tracking, it's all tracking sort of Morpheus's story. It's all, it's all that linear progressive watching Morpheus over the course of the season, um, be forced to, uh, grow up in certain ways. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Neil, this, this is now, uh, the story is taking place in 2021 as opposed to the late eighties, 1989, right? What is the benefit of having a story told in the 21st century as opposed to the end of uh, the, uh, the 20th century?
2: One thing that was really fun and peculiarly liber- liberating, I think, for both teams was um, shortly before we started work on this, Audible started doing their audio adaptation of Sandman. And because we knew that we were going to be doing this thing of setting um, what we did now, it kind of allowed the Audible version just to say, okay, we are the audiobooks. We're not going to try and do anything clever. We're not going to try and change things. We're not going to try and evolve. We're audiobooks, and we will be very, very... um, incredibly faithful adaptations. Once they'd made that decision, that kind of also liberated us in a weird way to go, well, if somebody wants a faithful, dramatic representation of it in every line, in every word, in every breath, that's here and that does exist. So let's go, let's just go, okay, well, what what can we do that makes this television? What can we do that I couldn't do? Um, You know, in The Doll's House, John Cameron Mitchell plays Hal. Um, In the comic, you don't see Hal performing or singing. Hal comes on and talks to us about the show that they're in, but doesn't actually tell us you know, but we don't see any performances because we don't need to, and because honestly, comics are great for a lot of things, but the performances of songs tend not to be one of them. Here we have John Cameron Mitchell, and we can put him up on a stage with a piano and let him rip, and we can do, we can make theatrical magic, and then we can go back. Um, I, going to give something away here but you get to see at one point in in his dreams how performing while Dolly his drag alter ego is doing a duet with him and they perform a magnificent and terrifying duet um and that's the kind of thing I just couldn't have done in the comics and pulled off so we can do that on television and it feels liberating and glorious and beautiful.
1: This this film, or the show filmed while the world was still on pause during lockdown. And a major part of the story, the beginning of the story, is that Morpheus is, is a captive for 75 years and now 105 years. Was there a surreal quality to telling a story about the world and the world of dreams being on pause while the real world was also on pause?
2: I think, um, A, it felt incredibly apt. It felt very appropriate, especially with the disease, sleepy sickness, the real disease that did start as a sort of peculiar epidemic. In 1916, of people just falling asleep and not waking up? Um, but also, for me, we got to create some incredibly dreamlike moments because we were shooting in a pandemic. Probably the most dreamlike for me is episode three, um, where we have Joanna Constantine and Morpheus and Mad Hetty in London. And we shot it in London. And we shot it during that period of lockdown in November 2020, when nobody was allowed to leave their houses. But if you were a film crew, you were you, you were considered a vital thing and you were actually allowed to. Um, but we couldn't have any background artists. So there's no extras. And it's shooting in a London in which nobody was allowed to drive or to move. So everything is completely static. And the only three human beings in London, as far as you can tell, are Amorphius and Joanna Constantine and Mad Hetty and then Matthew. And it creates... A sort of feeling as if you're in a waking dream all the way through because you've never seen that London. That London doesn't exist, and yet that was the London we were able to shoot in.
0: That's a very good answer. I
1: wouldn't have, yeah. Yeah. That was fantastic. You're, now, Neil, you've said that you are. Taking a more active role than you did on American Gods and less active than on Good Omens. And Alan, you have worked on TV, films, and also are a comic book guy. So talk a little bit about your dynamic with each other, and the conversations you had as you were putting together this entire show. Alan, why don't you begin on that? What, what was the dynamic like with Neil?
0: Well, I was terrified, um, <laughs> frankly, I-, I uh, I'm very scared. Well, yes, I know. I had met Neil once before at a signing at, at Four Color Images at my friend's gallery, and he had signed my, my Mr. Punch for me. Um, and I was, you know, you were very intimidating. Um, But also, this is his baby, and this is a baby I have worshipped since it was born as a fan. Um, And I knew that Neil was going to be executive producing it, and I wasn't sure how this was going to go. Because in television, you have to make a million decisions, and you have to make them immediately. And if Neil—I didn't know what it was going to be. And very organically, our conversations—I remember at dinner— it they just sort of, it turns out we both love Sandman a lot and we're both conversant in it and felt similarly, the sort of, the things that we found the most important about Sandman and the reason to tell the story were the same. And I think that's hugely important that you both believe you're, you know, that you both know what the story is and you both know why you're telling it and why you're telling it right now. And I feel like we got really lucky um, I feel very lucky because I didn't, I had full reign to, you know, do whatever I needed to do or wanted to do on a day to day basis. And he knew that there weren't any decisions that I was making moment to moment that I wasn't sharing with him. So I think he felt um, and you, I'm, I'll let you speak for yourself, but we were, in case people are interested, we were emailing a million times a day. We would Zoom a minimum of three or four times a week, and we would talk on the phone, usually for long stretches on the weekends, and he's watching everything, and he's seeing every, every costume and every, um, every everything, every prop. Um, he's getting virtual tours of the sets. David Goyer is too. And so we're all sort of in sync in the way that we love Sandman and in the way that we wanted to tell this story. So I wasn't expecting it to become, you know, we weren't in the same place. He was in New Zealand and I was in London the whole time, but he truly was one of my closest connections, human connections uh, during that time and and now, um, which I don't know that I would have, I felt
2: blessed by it. I, I, as a general rule, just going through life, day by day, I have imposter syndrome. I assume that I'm here by luck. It's all some kind of awful mistake. And any moment now, people are going to figure it out. And then I'll be dispensed with. The weird and wonderful thing about talking with Alan about Sandman was realizing that I know more about Sandman than anybody else does. And that I could answer his questions. So Alan and I, from very early on, he would call me and say, this thing here, and I would go, oh yeah, or oh no, or this, or okay, what's important here? And I would just tell him everything I knew um, because it was important if he was going to be there making day-by-day decisions that he understood as much as I did, which meant that Alan was getting this sort of weird masterclass in Sandman always. Um, you know, that would always be where the conversations would go or where they'd bounce off from or whatever. Um, you,
0: have a, you have this relationship with Sandman that you told me is unique in that Neil remembers uh, where he was writing, which issue... Like you you have a, a, an almost, I don't know if photographic memory is the right term, but you remember sensorially, I remember that writing this moment and this is what I was looking at and this is what I felt. And yeah. so you get the whole, it, it isn't, I can't remember. And, you know, as a Sandman fan, there were a lot of mysteries that I expected Neil to be coy about, you know, even with me. And uh, it's been a fanboy dream come true because he'll I'll, tell I'll, me I'll everything. answer every question. Every question I ever wanted to know. Not, it, I don't want to make you jealous.
1: I'm I'm feeling very jealous. I think you should all be jealous. Is this? But this is. Does this allow you the freedom, though, to also say, Neil? I know these are your babies. I know you know everything in and out about this world and about Sandman. But what if we go in this direction with that character? Did you have the freedom to do that? And really? and did you receive those those comments well?
2: And some of the time. I would go yeah that's a great idea and some of the time I would go yeah that's a no because and or I'd go but what about or that's a really interesting approach Alan but wouldn't we get more mileage if we also used this bit of sandman from over here and plug that in there and then we could get to where you're going more easily and he would be going oh yes you can and and it, so it was incredible it was it was never me versus Alan. It was always the two of us working together to get the best Sandman that we could, mm-hmm. and
0: that's unique. I mean, authors, people who work alone, who are novelists and graphic novelists, and who are authors, having the skill to work with other writers, which is a very televisiony thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's not. That's not usually what you expect when you when you team up with an author to adapt his or her work. And from the first second when David and Neil and I were basically doing our little writer's room upstate, um, Neil was game and incredibly collaborative and I said this to you at the time, just a natural for the writer's room. Just, you know, the same rules apply to improv. He never says no. He always says yes and what if, and I didn't expect it. And it's been, I mean, a tremendous source of
2: everything. It's been so much fun. I always used to say in interviews about why there wasn't a Sandman movie, occasionally why there wasn't a Sandman TV show, but mostly about why there wasn't a Sandman movie. Um, And I would say there will not be one until you get somebody who cares as much about Sandman as Peter Jackson cared about Lord of the Rings shows up to helm Sandman. And for me, that's what Alan was and is. He, He cares that much about it. He is not going to let anybody, you know, change the things. I always get a bit baffled on social media where I see people talking about Netflix as if old Mr. Netflix comes down to the set all the time and pulls pages out of the script that he doesn't like and writes dialogue for people and says, oh, you can't do that. No, I'm Mr. Netflix and I'm going to stop me. Because that's not really how it works. This, this, is get, this isn't getting made by Netflix. Netflix is a, the place that you will go to see it. It's getting made by me and by Alan. And the casting decisions, love them or hate them, made by me and Alan. Nobody has cast anybody that we over our heads or against our wishes. um, this This is an us agreement thing and we're making it and I feel honored and thrilled that I'm there all the way as a fellow traveler and I'm also so happy that Alan is driving the car um, partly because I've already driven that car, and you know, had to deal with DC Comics and had to take it all the way and and make this three thousand page thing. Um, so I'm like, you know, I can I cannot lose sleep over Sandman. Alan gets to be the one who. <laughs> Literally gets to lose sleep. Meanwhile, I'm over in another corner losing sleep over Good Omens 2 and the Nancy Boys right now. And so it's not like I'm, I'm getting a full night's sleep anyway. But it is like um, Alan gets to be the one to drive this car, whereas I get to sit in the passenger seat with the map in front of me saying, I think maybe we should turn
1: left. Uh, Well, I'm getting the rap sign, but I have to ask one question because you use this word helm, and from far away I saw Morpheus' helm, uh, which you know after this interview I'm going to ask to see it up close. But tell me about the moment where you said you spent 30 years keeping bad Sandman adaptations from happening. Tell me about the moment, whether it's on set, whether it's meeting actors, where you realized this is happening and this is the good Sandman adaptation happening and this world is coming to life. I want to hear from both of you, but obviously I need to hear from you, Neil.
2: Tug of love baby eaten by cows. It was a headline on a newspaper being read by somebody in um, in the, the Undercroft at, at Forney Rig where Morpheus was being held a prisoner. And it was dated, whatever it was, somewhere in September 1988. And that was when Morpheus escaped. And it was that newspaper and that headline. And I didn't on a gut level, believed that it was all happening until I was being shown around the prop room. And we, I don't know if we'd started shooting. We may have been like a couple of yeah. days, maybe one we day into on shoot. While you were. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you were at for And I was walking around the props and being shown stuff. And there in front of me was the copy of a Sun newspaper dated, you know, September 2022, and Tug of Love Baby Eaten by Cows was the headline. And I thought, we are, it's actually happening, and it's real, and it's being made by people who care, and by, made by people who love the original. And that, because I haven't said that, let me just say this, I have never experienced so many fans as, and so many people who loved the thing they were making as I experienced being on the Sandman set. It was as if um, you started to feel like every Sandman fan in the movie and TV world who had heard this was happening had begged, cajoled, murdered if necessary to get onto that set and to be there making that thing. Um, And since it happened, I've had, you know, on other sets and just walking around London, I've had people come up to me who made Sandman. This guy did the Matthew puppet. Someone over here was a props decorator. This was a, you know, a third AD or whatever. And They are so excited. They've seen this thing. They know what it is. And they can't wait. And and I sort of asked them, what was your favorite episode? And just get really excited with them. And we'd be fans together. But it really is, I think, the combination of the newspaper headline, but also meeting the fans, meeting the people who love sandman and are now making sandman so if you're a fan out there just know the people who made this thing the people who made the helm the people who made the props the people who made the special effects happen the the ad's the set designers the set decorators the makeup people the costume people they care as much as you do and they're determined to get it right
1: and that's talking
2: sandman with Neil
1: Gaiman for Talking Strange. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and I hope you are enjoying Sandman on Netflix. If you've not already started it, then you need to do yourself a favor, start it now, or at least right after you finish this podcast episode, and then check it out. You've got 10 episodes to get through. It's going to take you a little bit of time, but well worth it. Before I leave you, we're doing something new on Talking Strange. We want to get your strange stories. You can write them up. You can record some audio. We might play them or read them in a future episode. Just email talkingstrange at denofgeek.com. Thanks for joining. And don't forget to subscribe and download each week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our talking strange videos at youtube.com slash den of geek us. And I want to hear from you at Aaron Sagers on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook and on Patreon and at talk strange pod on Twitter. Until next time, be kind, stay spooky and keep it weird.